0: So we are in week five of our current series called The Gospel According to Pixar. Uh, For 25 years, uh, Pixar has been making some of our favorite uh, movies, um, most popular movies. As Christians, we want to be in the world but not of the world. We are spending some time thinking about these movies from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective. Uh, Paul tells us in Philippians 4.8 that whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Anything, whatever, includes Pixar. So is there anything praiseworthy in these movies? Is there anything to learn from? Is there anything Christian? Uh, so far, we've uh, considered movies like Toy Story, Finding Nemo, Coco, The Incredibles. Uh, next week, I'm excited about this, Arielle Stevens will be making her rooftop preaching debut. Uh, she's going to be talking to us about Inside Out. This morning, though, uh, we're going to talk about the 2006 sports comedy film, Cars. Now, Cars was uh, written and directed by John Lasseter, who is the original creative talent force behind the Pixar empire. Lasseter says he grew up with two great passions in life, Disney movies and race cars, and that he's always wanted to make a movie about race cars. So after the early success of some of their first few films, he finally had his chance to make Cars. Now, the movie's protagonist is a talented but arrogant race car rookie sensation named Lightning McQueen. He and his two rivals, Skip the King Weathers and frequent runner-up Chick Hicks, finish the last race of the Piston Cup season in a dead tie. They are all sent out to California for a runoff one week later. Along the way there, Lightning falls out of his trailer and winds up in a forgotten desert town named Radiator Springs. During a chase from the sheriff, he has inadvertently ruined the town's main drag and is ordered by the judge, an old car named Doc, voiced by Paul Newman, to fix the road before leaving town. Lightning can't believe that he is being held up from glory by a bunch of hillbillies. But it's through the friendships that he forms in Radiator Springs that he realizes there's more to life than winning races. He returns to competition a new man, or shall we say, a refurbished vehicle. Now, I am a big fan of Pixar, but I have to tell you that Cars is regarded by most critics as one of their worst movies. (laughs) Uh, On Rotten Tomatoes, which is a a popular movie-ranking website, It is liked by just 70% of critics, which is actually low for Pixar. Most Pixar movies are like way up in the 90s. Uh, The only movies ranked worse by critics than Cars are Cars 2 and Cars 3, the sequels. Now, why the low grades? Well, critics love a lot about the movie, and I do too. The, the scenery is beautiful. The, the race sequences are exciting. The ensemble of characters is original. The casting is well done. The film is really inventive, really creative. I mean, how they make cars look and behave and act like humans is, frankly, brilliant, in my opinion. But, but one of the guiding mantras of Pixar is that story is king, That's actually what they put up on the walls at the Pixar studios. Story is king. If you don't have a great story, you don't have a great movie. And this is a good, but not great, story. It's just kind of unoriginal. The story has been told before. Brash, but talented young man gets sidetracked by life, comes back a different person. Everybody's happy in the end. There's really no surprises anywhere in the movie. But despite the predictable storyline, I'm still actually a huge fan of the movie, It's one of my favorites. I think it's really creative. I think it's really funny. I laugh a lot when I see it. Um, But if I can say this about a a, a Pixar movie, one of the reasons I really like it, is it resonates with me. You see, what's the movie really all about? The movie's about success. Lightning McQueen is addicted to success. He wants to succeed at all costs. His self-esteem depends on it. He speeds through life looking for trophies and success. I, too, have a complicated relationship with success. I've always wanted to be success. And anything I do, I want to be the winner. If I can't win at something, I will not attempt it. Uh, everything is a competition for me. I'm a competitive, hard-driving, success-driven man. I always have been. When I was a kid, I wanted to win every race, I wanted to win every student government office I ran for. I wanted to win every part I auditioned for in the school musical. The competition at Parkway North in the 1980s was stiff, though. Some of you know this about me, but I was a friend of Eric Greitens growing up. Uh, You know Eric Greitens, former governor of Missouri who resigned in disgrace. Is perhaps running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, Eric, Since third grade, Eric and I were... Buddies doing everything together, organizations. We lived in the same neighborhood, played on the same sports teams, took all the same classes. Eric was a stud growing up. He was talented, he was handsome, he was brilliant. After graduating at the top of our class, he went on a full ride to Duke, then to Oxford as a Rhodes Scholar, became a Navy SEAL. Uh, He traveled the world on humanitarian missions. He started an organization for wounded veterans, ran for governor without being in politics, and he won. Uh, there was talk about him running for president. There still is. In fact, when we were in third grade, there was talk about him running for president, and I'm not exaggerating. Well, Eric was my friend and my competition growing up. Anything he could do, I had to do better. If he was student government vice president, I had to be the president, which I was, just so you know. <laughs> if he was a homecoming king, I had to be the prom king, which I was. If he got an A in American Dream with Mr. Blaha, I had to get an A+. plus. If he scored a goal in the soccer game against Hazelwood, I had to score two, which is really difficult to do when you're the goalie, but I did try. <laughs> but there was no competing with Eric Greitens, though. He won like 90% of the time. He didn't even have to try. I did. Maybe I grew up an insecure child. I know I did, but I did. I grew up needing to beat Eric Greitens, even after he went off to Duke and Oxford And I went off to prestigious Northeast Missouri State University in Kirksville, Missouri, the Harvard of the Midwest, as we tell ourselves. I still felt myself wanting to win to beat Eric Greitens. Those competitive instincts, they die hard, if at all. Even as a Christian, I want to be the best Christian out there. (laughs) I want to be a better Christian than you. I want to beat you at Christianity. I want my heavenly mansion to be bigger than your heavenly mansion. And as a pastor, I feel this need to be a successful one with a successful church, with a reputation, and with billboards. And we actually have the billboards. I don't have seen the billboards. We've got billboards now. And I do a pretty good job, you know, I do a pretty good job of, of hiding these instincts. And I am so grateful to the Holy Spirit for tempering them over the years but they're still there, (laughs) bubbling. (laughs) Now, this isn't all bad. Competition can be a good thing. It pushes us to achieve our best, to excel past our limits, and there is nothing wrong wanting to be successful, even in the eyes of others. We're seeing this as we watch the Olympics. I mean, we admire these athletes because they have spent their lives pushing to pursue their dreams. And when they reach the top of the metal stand, we don't call them shallow and insecure. We applaud their focus and their efforts. They inspire us to push ourselves a little bit more. But there is a dark side in the chase for the cup, the quest for glory. In fact, there are lots of dark sides. First of all, success isn't guaranteed. And if our lives are too wrapped up in the chase for the cup, we can find ourselves quite unhappy at the end. And if we do achieve success, you know, it can be quite fleeting. One moment you're at the top of your game. One moment you're, you're on the cover of a box of Wheaties. Next moment, nobody has any idea who you are. The quest for success can also leave us exhausted and broken, too. This is one of the dark, open secrets of the Olympics, in order to, like, achieve at the Olympics, you kind of got to ruin your life. So the chase for the cup has its dark side. But there's another more foundational question that we have to ask here. What does it even mean to succeed? What even is success? What are we even talking about? That's worth discussing. You see, all of us want to be successful, to more or less, At some point in our lives, we've all wanted to be successful. Maybe a lot of us have just kind of given up on it. Oh, well, I'm not going to be successful. But God wants us to be successful. God wants all of us to be successful. God might want you and I to be even more successful than we do. But what does that even mean? The Bible, and frankly, certain prosperity preachers, (laughs) have a certain definition of, of what success looks like. To be successful means to to, to be admired, or the world, rather. Not the Bible, we'll talk about what the Bible says about this. But the world has a certain definition of successful. To be successful means to be admired, it means to be really happy, it means to be rich, it means to reach the top of your professional or academic ladder. But is that real success? Maybe in a worldly sense, but the Bible actually defines success much differently, which is a good thing. It's a good thing that the Bible defines success differently because if the world's definition of success is what's counts, what counts, we're all in trouble. I realized that when I kept pitting myself up against Eric Greitens year after year. I slowly learned that if I measure my success against how Eric Greitens is doing, I am in big trouble. Sure, I can beat him hands down in a musical theater competition... But in practically every other metric, I'd lose, except in integrity, but we'll talk about that in a moment. (laughs) He's smarter, more handsome, more successful, more articulate, more well-known than me. Compared to Eric Greitens, I'm actually quite the loser. When it comes to the world standards of success, very few of us are actually going to succeed. But the good news here is that the world standards of success aren't what counts. The Bible has different standards, standards Jesus can help every single one of us reach because Jesus really does want you to be successful in life and faith. But again, what does that mean? How does God define success? Well, that's what I want to talk about with you this morning. I've got four trophies that describe what success really looks like according to God. Four trophies of the sort of success that really matter. First, success is staying on track. Success is staying on track. What I mean is that success is running the right race. Not the rat race. (laughs) The right race. One way or another, life is a race. We all get caught up in all kinds of races. Races for professional success. Races for uh, wealth. Races for long life. Races for the big happy family. Races for the, you know, the best spouse. Races for academic achievement. Races for our children's success. Everybody's trying to get ahead in one race or another. Those become our pursuits. But they're not the right races. It's not the right track. In the Old Testament, for example, uh, we meet a guy in the book of Ecclesiastes who tried running every race he could. His name was Solomon, the great and successful king of Jerusalem. Solomon had all the resources needed at his disposal. He could have had whatever kind of success he wanted, and he tried. He put his hand to knowledge. He he put his hand to industry. He put his his hand to spiritual wisdom, to to pleasure. He was a real Eric Grytons of the Old Testament. And the book of Ecclesiastes is the report that he writes, that Solomon writes, on what he finds. And, And what he finds is that All these pursuits lead to emptiness, meaninglessness, vanity, he says. Whatever we succeed at in life just doesn't last and doesn't offer what we really hope it does. And he should know, as the author writes in chapter 1, I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. All the things. Not some of the things, all the things done under the sun. Meaningless, chasing after the wind. So many of us are caught up in races. They're leading us nowhere. So what if you succeed professionally? So what if you finish your PhD? So what if your kids become all-American athletes? It's all fleeting. All of them, all of them are meaningless, chasing after the wind. It doesn't matter how hard you run in a race if you're running the wrong race. So what's the right race? What's the right track? Solomon tells us, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Living for God is the only track that matters. As Jesus says in the Gospels, but seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. That's the right track. That's the right race. Seeking God's righteousness for your life. I think about this when I think about Eric and some of the other people that I've found myself competing with in life. Uh, sure, they're successful in this way or that. Sure, they make more money. Sure, they have larger social media following. Sure, they make, might even be making more of a difference in the world. But are they even on the right track? Are you? Are you on the right track? Are you pursuing God's righteousness for your life? Goodness, self control, love, sacrifice, service, gentleness, graciousness. That is the only race that matters. Success is staying on the right track. Secondly, success is playing by the rules. In life, we make a big deal about who wins. Right? We don't, at the Olympics, we don't cover, we don't take pictures and video of the losers. (laughs) We put the winners up on the pedestals. Winning isn't everything. What is it? It's the only thing. We're so obsessed with winning that we cut corners big and small. It's well known in the sports world. If you're not cheating, you're not trying. (laughs) If you're not cheating, you're not trying. Uh, The Houston Astros know a lot about this. They're the ones who uh, stole pitches and like signaled the batter by banging on the trash can. But the open secret in Major League Baseball is they just happen to be the ones that got caught. Everybody's doing it. But cheating to succeed isn't success. There's is a different word for this. That's failure. <laughs> That's moral failure. But you don't need to be a professional sports team to be a cheater, though. Even in church, we do our fair share of cheating. Uh, pastors are, are, are very good at cheating. One of the things we do, we pastors do is we find ways to round up the size of our church to make ourselves feel more successful. People ask me all the time, hey, how big is your church? And I'll find a way to answer with the largest possible number I can. Well, you know, over the past 20 years, about 2,500 people have come. Well, some don't come anymore, and some of them are dead, but about 2,500 or so. (laughs) Uh, We pastors also do our fair share of, uh, of sheep stealing. You know what sheep stealing is? It's taking people from different churches. You see, in Christianity... 90% Ninety for something like ninety percent of all church growth is lateral. It's just churches kind of shuffling around from one cool church to the next cool church to the next cool church. It's not really church growth, and most of the time we're okay with it, you know, because it kind of helps us out. Now I know that there are some really broken, unhealthy churches out there, and I, re- I know that the Holy Spirit kind of leads people away from unhealthy churches, but not always. And a lot of times, people are just sort of avoiding difficult conversations at their home church, or, or they're sort of breaking commitments that they've made to their church family. And pastors, what do pastors do? They just kind of take them in. That's cheating. And we actually try not to do that here at Rooftop. When we welcome new members here at Rooftop, we always ask people, where'd you come from and Why? And I've actually told people, I don't know if this is like the best step for you. Maybe you need to go back and at least have a conversation with that congregation that you just kind of left. I mean, we want Rooftop to grow and succeed and get bigger, but not by taking advantage of struggling churches. That's not right. That's not success. That's cheating. Another word for this is integrity. Integrity matters, especially in our leaders. And integrity isn't always successful in a worldly sense. If you're not willing to cheat in life and business and politics and even ministry, you can fall behind. But it will catch up with you. Cheating on your taxes will catch up with you. Lying on your resume will catch up with you. Fibbing to your boss about your performance will catch up with you. Cheating on your wife will catch up to you. God sees these things. As the book of Proverbs says, a wicked person earns deceptive wages, but the one who sows righteousness reaps a reward. So you might not be making waves in life. You might not be making lots of money. You might not have that big, happy, healthy family that you've always wanted. But if you are living a life of quiet integrity, pursuing God's righteousness in your life, playing by the rules, you are winning The only race that matters. And you will be rewarded. Success. Being on the right track. Playing by the rules. Thirdly, success. Having a good crew. Having a good crew. Uh, One of the things I really liked about uh, the movie Cars is the friendships. Friendships that Lightning McQueen uh, forums with the citizens of Radiator Springs. There's Mater and Fillmore and Sarge and Sally and Flo and Luigi and Doc. It's got a good cast, and they really bond together very well. I actually thought this was ridiculously unrealistic. I mean, McQueen is this arrogant, brash race car. He has been his whole life. He has no friends except for his agent, who's not even his friend. But over the course of like four days in Radiator Springs, he forms this team of wonderful friendships. It just kind of happens, if only, right? Social skills don't develop that quickly. Trust me, it's taken a lifetime to get here. I'm still learning a lot. But unrealistic or not, the point holds Friends are one of the biggest successes we can have in life. What is life without friendship? They make life meaningful. And here's the thing. The chase for the cup can make friendships difficult. Our pursuit of success and getting ahead makes friendships hard. Solomon actually discovered this. In Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 4, he writes, I saw that all the toil... All the achievement in life spring from one person's envy of another. All our hard work to get ahead spring because we're jealous of what that person has. This too is meaningless. Chasing after the wound. He goes on actually. I saw something else meaningless under the sun. A man all alone had neither son nor brother. For whom am I toiling, he asked. This too is meaningless, miserable business. But two are better than one. Because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity the one who falls. has no one to help them up. Pity the one who blows a tire and has no one to change it. One of the tendencies of success-driven people is that they neglect meaningful relationships. And this is what Solomon says. Our achievement and hard work spring from our envy of each other, which make relationships really hard. So our thirst for success leaves us lonely because we see each other as the competition. I actually know a lot about this. You you might know uh, it's hard for pastors to have friends. It's actually hard for pastors to have friends for lots of reasons. One, we're so busy doing the Lord's work, people don't want to interrupt Um, Also, people don't want to think um, low of me, so I got to kind of keep a righteous facade to certain people. But it's also hard for pastors to have friends with other pastors uh, because we see each other as the competition. I've got a pastor friend that I hang out with, for example, uh, but it's taken a while for us to, to feel like we're not competing with each other because that's our mutual instincts. I mean, lots of ways I would beat him. <laughs> in Lots of ways he would beat me. We've, like, discussed these ways. Uh, one of the ways that, that he would beat me is uh, he, his bookshelves are much bigger and nicer than mine. And these things matter to pastors. I don't like meeting at his office because I don't have to see his big bookshelves. And I don't like meeting at my office because they're little weak, little target bookshelves. So we meet on neutral ground. My point is, it's taken some time, though, to get past the envy, however subtle, and just be friends. But we're there now, and in some ways, my friendships with other pastors is one of my greatest personal successes in life. Why? Because it's taken a long time to get past the instincts, the competition. You might be in the same situation if you don't even know it. You see, one of the reasons that we struggle to develop real friendships is because we don't want to look bad in front of other people who we want to like us and to have a good regard for us. We compete very subtly for who looks more well put together. So when we get to know someone, we guard ourselves. We try to put up a good front. But that's not friendship. Friendship is honesty. Friendship is vulnerability. Friendship is confession. Friendship is being willing to look like a loser in front of somebody else. We struggle to do that because we compete with each other for who wants to look the happiest. But that's letting our quest for success get in the way of meaningful relationships. And maybe that's something that you need to think about this morning. Maybe you struggle with meaningful relationships in life because you're more concerned with looking more presentable than with just being yourself. But that's not success, it's not friendship, Solomon calls it a miserable business, being all alone like that, with no one who really understands you. Find that person, find that person. He is rich who has that person in his life. Real success, staying on track, playing by the rules, having a good crew. Finally, success is finishing the race. Sometimes the most successful thing you can do is just finish what you've started, no matter how long it takes you to finish it. Recently, I stumbled across the story of Japanese marathon runner Shitzo Konkuri. Uh, Konkuri was a runner from Japan who traveled to Stockholm to compete in the marathon in the 1912 Olympics in Sweden. Halfway through the race, Concurry uh, got sick, fainted. He actually woke up in the house of a Swedish family that had found him on the road and taken him home to care for him. Uh, he was too embarrassed and ashamed to admit to his countrymen that he, uh, you know, didn't finish the race. So he snuck out of Sweden. He snuck back into Japan. Uh, the Swedish actually listed him as a missing person in the race. Eventually, 50 years later, somebody somewhere realized that Shizuo Concurry was still alive and they invited him back to Sweden to finish the course. So in 1967, Tzu Concurry at 80 years old flew to Sweden and finished the last few miles of the race. Officials were there to make it official and his Olympic marathon time is officially in the books listed at 54 years, 8 months, 6 days, 5 hours, 32 minutes and 20.3 seconds, the longest marathon in recorded Olympic history. Sometimes real success is just finishing the race, no matter how long it takes. That's not how we view success, though. We view success in the short term. We want to win right now. And sometimes there are those moments where you got to perform right now. But the real challenge is always going to be not giving up, right? Life's not a sprint. Life's a marathon. So is ministry. So is faith. While I was in seminary, this is something that my professors drilled into our heads. What God wants from you people is faithfulness. It doesn't matter how much of a success you are on this given Sunday. It doesn't matter how much of a successful year you had or a successful month you had. If you don't make it to the end, that's what Jesus longs to tell his people at the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful. Faithful with a few things, I'll put you in charge of many. The reward comes at the end to those who finish faithfully, as Paul says to the Corinthians. Now, finish the work. Finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it. It's one thing to start something. It's another thing to finish it. The most important thing to do in life is to finish it. And this isn't just for pastors or for marathon runners. This is something we all need to hear. I mean, more often than not, our days and weeks are filled with failure, right? Our kids don't do what we want them to do. Our our boss doesn't like our work. Our, Our students don't do their homework. We can't escape our addiction or our sin. We can't get ahead financially. We can't find the job that we need on a day to day basis. We just feel like such failures, right? But what's true success? Success isn't winning on a day-to-day basis. Success is making it to the end. Success is not giving up as a mom. Success is not giving up as a pastor. Success is not giving up as a teacher or as a real estate agent or as a husband or as a friend or as a Christian. Of course, sometimes we need a little help to not give up. Life's too hard and too long to make it all the way to the end on our own. I mean, some of us are out of gas right now. It's been a long couple of years, right? We might be ready to give up. I actually heard a news report the other day about pastors who quit during COVID. They're like, I'm out. I'm not out, but I get it. You do too. Can we all just be out? No not how it works. But we don't have to finish on our own. We don't have to finish on our own. This is not a race we need need to even run by ourselves. Better than that. It's actually a race Jesus has already run for us. Jesus has finished this race. Jesus has won this cup. When Jesus carried the cross and died for our sins and rose from the dead, he won the victory of sin and death. We have achieved immortal success in the victory of Christ. We are already more than conquerors, says the Bible. There is no need for us to win this race. Jesus has already won it. One more time. There's no need for us to win this race. Jesus has already won it. But we do have to finish it. And we cannot finish it except in Jesus Christ. He sets the pace. He marks the trail. As the book of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, that's a stadium imagery, since we are surrounded by a bunch of spectators, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. The pioneer, the perfecter, the starter and the finisher. That's what he's saying. The pioneer and perfecter. The starter and the finisher of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and not lose heart. See how the race is long. But we have a great cloud of witnesses cheering us on, and we have the victorious Son of God paving the way. So keep running. I could end there. Nice dramatic moment. But (laughs) why not also end with a cheesy Pixar clip? At the risk of spoiling uh, the movie Cars, there's actually a scene at the end of the movie that I find kind of touching and even surprising. At the runoff race for the Piston Cup Championship, uh, one of McQueen's competitors has a terrible crash. He's at risk of not finishing the last lap of his last race and being forgotten by history. Uh, But he does find a way across the line with some help. And as we watch the scene, maybe you'll connect. You know the feeling of being too beat up to finish, too tired, too broken. You want to finish, just can't get across. Well, you don't have to. Jesus is the champion. He's the victor. He's your success. He can push you across the line.